everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish, and I'm solo with you today. Unfortunately, Maddie is a bit under the weather and not able to record, so we didn't want to delay putting out the episode, so I'm just going to do this one alone. And I just want to take a moment and thank all of our listeners, those that have reached out to us to leave us a review or even just to tell us what they think of the episode. But if you'd like to get in touch with us or have a case suggestion you'd like to share, you can do so through a couple of means. One way is through our website at criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On there, you will find all of our episodes, you will find our show notes, and you will find our resource section where we give credit where credit is due. You can and also reach out to us through our Facebook page at Criminal Discourse Podcast, our Instagram page at Criminal Dispod, D-I-S-P-O-D, and we also have a YouTube and Twitter page. All right, so we're going to get started right away. Our story begins in Edna, New Hampshire, a small community located within the town of Hanover. So it's a town within a town located on the western side of New Hampshire in the scenic Upper Connecticut River Valley. So the river separates the states of Vermont and New Hampshire. And it is also home to the Ivy League institution, Dartmouth College. Now, Dartmouth was established in 1769 by Yale graduate Eliza Wheelock and is one of the oldest private educational institutions in the United States, established before the American Revolution. The 46th governor of Pennsylvania, Tom Wolfe, is an alumnus of Dartmouth, along with Gray's Anatomy creator Shonda Rhimes and office alum Mindy Kaling. So our story begins around 6.30 p.m. on January 27th, 2001. Roxana Verona arrived at the home of Half and Suzanne Zantop for dinner. Now, Roxana and the Zantops worked at nearby Dartmouth College. Half Zantop, 62 at the time, was an earth science and geology professor, and Suzanne, 55 at the time, was the chair of the German Studies Department and taught comparative literature. Both had worked at Dartmouth since the mid-1970s and were well thought of and liked. Roxana was a little perplexed when she arrived at the Zantops as they didn't answer the door and nothing seemed to be going on inside the home, as one would expect if being invited over for dinner. So Roxana entered the home calling out for the couple, and when she entered the study, she found the room to be in shambles and the bodies of Half and Suzanne lying on the floor in pools of blood. Roxana fled the Zantop residence and went to the nearest neighbor's house on Trescott Road, and that was the McCullums. So within seven minutes, officers from the Hanover Police Department arrived at the residence. And what stood out to officers was how really nothing appeared to be out of place throughout the house except for in the study. Nothing appeared to be missing, and the home was full of antiques and collectibles. So initial investigators thought, how could this be a murder-suicide? But that was quickly ruled out as both victims had been repeatedly stabbed to death and there was no murder weapon found at the scene. The Zantop murders were only the third case of murder in over 50 years in the Hanover area. So as investigators walked through the crime scene, they did come across a bloody boot print. So Detective Eric Bates cordoned off the boot print using pieces of wood until the crime scene unit could arrive to process it. He was afraid with it being such a bloody scene, could it have gotten trampled on? And he wanted it as pristine as it could be so it could be processed. The scene of the Zantop's home was horrific. Suzanne Zantop's body was found lying near the door of the study, with Half's body lying further into the room. There was an overturned chair near his feet and two other chairs set up near the desk. 
Now, to investigators, it looked as if perhaps a conversation had taken place. So also found in the room were two 10-inch length knife sheaves, which may have held the murder weapons, but there were no knives found. So following the trail of blood from the study leads to the front door. Now, the front door was unlocked, and it didn't appear to have any evidence of being forced open or tampered with. So did the Santops know their assailants? Initial beliefs by the investigators that due to the -the over-the-top violence, was this possibly a crime of passion? Was there someone who hated the Xantops enough to kill them both? So not knowing what the motive for the murder was, investigators started checking out local airports, bus stations, local cab companies, trying to see if their murderer or murderers were trying to leave town. So one taxi dispatcher did reach out to police to report that they had picked up a college student on the night of the 27th after midnight, taking them to Manchester Airport. But police soon ruled out this student as he had flown out due to a family family emergency. So Half Santop was described by those that knew him as being very lively and witty. His wife Suzanne was described as just very kind and generous. Half and Suzanne were both from Germany, but had met at Stanford University in the mid-1960s. The couple married in the 70s and had two daughters. Now, both Half and Suzanne, again, had taught at Dartmouth College since the mid-1970s and were both well-liked by staff and students. The autopsy would show that wounds on both Half and Suzanne were consistent with those inflicted by a tactical combat knife. Suzanne had suffered from 11 stab wounds and Half from 10 wounds over various parts of their body, with most of the wounds centered around their chest and face areas. Suzanne would also have her throat cut. So to rule out any of the investigators who were on scene that night as who could have left this bloody boot print, they had to collect all the footwear from the investigators. So that was like 14 pairs that had to be collected and tested to rule them out. So they also wanted to collect footwear from anyone who had entered the Xantop residence since they were last seen. So again, this kind of included neighbors, uh, emergency personnel, the medical examiner, the police, anybody. So in all, 14 pairs had to be collected process and all were eliminated by the crime lab, meaning that the print that was left was suspected to belong to at least one of the killers. Police sent the print off to the FBI crime lab, specifically their footwear section, to identify the pattern to determine which kind of boot it had come from. And the print would come back to be identified as belonging to an upscale hiking boot. So investigators started their interviewing process, starting with faculty and students on Dartmouth's campus. They find that in the days leading up to his murder, Half Santop had an argument with one of his students. And this student had an extensive knife collection and had an abrasion on his forehead when investigators talked to him. Now, he claimed he had a good relationship with Dr. Zantop and that they had a very jovial kind of relationship and he had been only joking around with him that day, not really arguing with him. Investigators were able to verify his alibi and this student was soon eliminated. So investigators had also found out that half Zantop had recently been given a position over another professor. Now, this other professor had actually left the area soon after the murders, so the police had to track him down as he had moved out west. And when they did, investigators had his car car impounded after they found out what looked like bloodstains in his trunk. It actually turned out to be spilled stew. So this other professor was also soon eliminated. So investigators were back to square one in terms of suspects that they had come to find out that the Xantops 
really didn't appear to have any enemies. They didn't live in a high-risk area. They didn't live in a high-risk lifestyle. Everyone seemed to like them. So they turned their focus to tracking down the murder weapons. Now, since there were two knife sheaths found at the scene, they wanted to find out, again, what type of knife they would belong to and find out who had purchased them. Investigators would come to find that they were the type of knife used by military or police. Again, a tactical combat knife. Over 5,000 knives would need to be tracked down based upon their investigation. Now, due to the sheer number, Brian Fitzell with the FBI office from Bedford, New Hampshire office was brought in to help. Now, upon examining the knife sheaths, forensics examiners would discover fingerprints on the back of one of them. Now, when the print was run through the state and federal databases, no match was made. So, in two investigators, this meant that either the person it belonged to had never been arrested or simply hadn't had their prints taken if they were. It didn't really help them out much at that time. So, investigators were feeling the pressure from the community to quickly solved the murders of the Xantops, who again were beloved in the Hanover community. After the FBI joined by both the local and state police task force, they were able to utilize the rapid start computer system to help keep track of the tremendous number of tips coming in. Now, once tips are scanned into the system, they are stored in a database where they can then be organized and searched. But nothing seemed to point to individuals responsible for the Xantops murder. So they have hundreds of these tips coming in. They're trying to organize them to see if they're showing any pattern or any connection and nothing's really coming to the surface. So were the Xantops targeted? was one of the questions investigators were initially thinking. And that didn't seem to make sense, as the use of a knife usually indicates something more personal. Plus, the crime scene appeared to be sloppy for a hit or an assassination. Why leave the sheaves behind? Plus, the boot prints and the fingerprints left behind would not be something a professional would do. Robbery was initially ruled out as it didn't appear that anything was missing from the home. For this reason, the FBI called in one of their profilers, Agent Jim Fitzgerald, with the Behavioral Analysis Unit to help give them more insight into their possible killers. So when Agent Fitzgerald first looked at the case, he felt that it was unusual due to the victims being, again, such a low risk and having been murdered during a Saturday morning. That is when they felt that the time of death occurred. Neither Half nor Suzanne lived, again, a high-risk lifestyle. They didn't live in a high-crime neighborhood, and they were not involved in any criminal activities. So in reading the scene, Agent Fitzgerald thought that the placement of the chairs in the study, again, looked as if an impromptu meeting had taken place before the murders. Agent Fitzgerald felt the killers, as he believed there were two assailants, were mission Orion, meaning they had come into the Xantop residence with a mission to kill anyone inside. The weapon choice was also perplexing. With mission-oriented killers, the choice usually was between a cheap gun like a Saturday night special or a gun with a silencer. The Xantops may have known their killers or at least felt comfortable enough to let them into their home. The extreme level of violence made no sense. And for that reason, Agent Fitzgerald felt that the killers were young and their motivation may have been about money or getting revenge. Nothing seemed to make sense in terms of motive for the Xantop murders. So investigators decided to release a basic profile to the public, asking if they noticed anyone exhibiting odd behaviors around the time of the murders. They asked for tips if anyone had recently changed their appearance, missed work or school for unexplained reasons, or had unexplained injuries or bruises on their hands 
hands or arms, and tips started pouring in. But unfortunately, nothing panned out. So initially, investigators, especially Agent Fitzgerald, had been told that nothing had been missing from the home. However, that wasn't true. And within a week, investigators discovered that Half's wallet was missing. Now, this changed everything as now they had a motive, a robbery that went bad. Investigators were still working on trying to track down who bought the murder weapons. So on February 14th, an internet retailer in Massachusetts was questioned and told investigators that they had sold two combat knives to a James Parker, who lived only 20 miles away from the crime scene. So James Parker lived across the state line in Chelsea, Vermont. Now, when investigators arrived at the Parker residence, they discovered that James Parker did not purchase the knives. However, James' 16-year-old son, also named James, had used his father's credit card to purchase the knives. His reason for doing so when questioned was that he and his 17-year-old friend, Robert Tullock, were going to use them to go rock climbing. In another article I read, it mentioned that they were also going to use them to build a fort. So I don't know if they were climbing rocks and then going to build a fort on top. So James went on to say that after the knives arrived, they realized that they were really too heavy for rock climbing purposes. So they sold them to somebody outside of an Army Navy store. Now, while James and his father did agree to go down to the station for further questioning, another set of investigators went to question Robert Tullock. Now, Robert would tell investigators that when the two had gone to the Army Navy store, they had sold the knives for only about 60 bucks. He basically told investigators the same story that James had told the investigators. And what piqued the investigators' interest was that both boys' stories were virtually identical, as if they memorized their statements. Now, when Robert was asked if he owned any boots, he showed investigators a pair that were the same make and model as the ones they were looking for. Robert also agreed to go down to the police station for further questioning, and he also agreed to be fingerprinted. But since he had no criminal record and cooperated with police, he was soon released. But investigators felt they were on the right track with these two. So investigators rushed to the crime lab, wanting Robert's hiking boots forensically examined to see if they were a match for the bloody boot print. They needed that match in order to get an arrest warrant. Now, due to the pressure on the case, these results were triple checked. But at 3 a.m., a definitive match was made. Investigators were also able to determine that Parker's fingerprint matched the ones at the scene. So while investigators were gathering their evidence for the arrest warrants, Parker and Tullock had told their parents that they were each spending the night at each other's homes. But Parker's parents had discovered a note that simply said, quote, don't call the cops. Unquote. His parents called the cops. So when investigators arrived with their arrest warrants, they found that Parker again and Tullock had taken off. Neither of their parents knew where their sons had gone. They thought they were at each other's home. So while investigators put out a bolo, be on the lookout for the boys, another investigator has searched Tullock's bedroom and found a cardboard box that contained both murder weapons. So the bolo contained information for a 1987 silver Audi, which would be found by a Massachusetts state trooper abandoned at a truck stop in Sturbridge. A worker at the truck stop would tell investigators that two clean-cut boys had been asking truckers for rides to California, and they had been using the names Sam and Tyler. When last seen, they had gotten a ride from a husband and wife trucking team. The FBI began to notify trucking companies and their dispatchers about the two young men trying to hook rides west and that they were wanted and believed to be armed and dangerous. Now, investigators learned that the two may have been spotted in Columbia, New Jersey, and had found another trucker to take them to California. FBI agents also notified police agencies in the region of the two using truckers to get them out of the area. 
So three weeks after the Zantop murders on February 19th, around 4 a.m. in Spiceland, Indiana, the local sheriff was listening to chatter over the CB radio, and he hears a trucker reach out to other truckers in the area about two guys needing a ride to California. So pretending to be a trucker, the sheriff said, hey, I'd be happy to give him a ride and we'll meet up with him at this local truck stop. So traveling to meet up with Parker and Tullock, the sheriff called for backup. Upon arriving, he ran into Parker and Tullock, and the sheriff asked both boys their names and where they were from. And they weren't even really able to answer some simple questions the sheriff was putting towards them, so he had soon taken them into custody. So once returned to New Hampshire and charged with two counts of first-degree murder, James Parker had an adult certification hearing to determine if he could be tried as an adult in the double homicides at the Zantops. Now, since Parker was 16 at the time of the murder, he was first dealt with in the juvenile justice system with the state prosecutors making it clear that they were going to try to certify him as an adult once he turned 17. In December 2001, it was announced that James Parker had reached a plea deal agreement with state prosecutors. He pleaded guilty to second-degree murder in April 2002 to the death of Suzanne Zanta and agreed to testify against Robert Tollock. Now, Robert Tollock, a former honor student, was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, and his attorney told the court that they were going to go for an insanity defense. However, Tollock would end up pleading guilty to two counts of first-degree murder and be sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Now, at their respective sentences, Parker broke down in tears while Tullock sat emotionless and refused to even look at the Zantop's daughters when they spoke and gave their victim impact statements. So when Parker sat down with investigators, he told them just how long he and Tullock had been planning on the murders and what led them to their decision to do so. Parker and Tullock were basically two bored teens who were looking for a life of adventure. They talked about becoming commandos like the Navy SEAL, but they really weren't down with all the discipline and training requirements that came with becoming a SEAL. So they decided to train themselves to commit robbery murder so that they could get enough money to travel to Australia, where they would just take what they wanted through hijacking, robbing, and killing. They decided that about $10,000 would be needed to get to Australia. Parker stated that, quote, we could just go wherever we want and then, you know, become these really cool people. And one of our main goals was um, to find some way to live forever, like just check out all the myths in Egypt or something. We weren't really sure. Unquote. Investigators thought that the pair thought that they were really smarter than everyone else. Parker told authorities that Tullock wanted to get used to killing by starting out by killing his own dog, which Parker did not agree with. But in the summer of 2000, the pair had been on their way home from a festival in Sugarbush, Vermont, and they first started talking about the robbery murder. That's when the idea started to get planted. The pair had also decided to break into two houses on their trip. So after the trip, the pair attempted to gain entry into a home when no one else was there or on other occasions they had been turned away. They had planned on getting into homes and holding the residents hostage until they gave them their personal identification numbers, their PIN numbers, and stealing their ATM cards. This was their master plan. Tullock and Parker decided that they would cross over the border into New Hampshire to look for a home that they felt would meet their need. They had picked the Zantop residence as it had looked expensive. Tullock and Parker in the previous six months had tried to gain entry into four other residents. Their first time was in July 2000 when they knocked on the door of a residence in Vershire, Vermont, claiming that their car had broken down and asking to use the phone. But before they had knocked on the door, they had actually cut the home's phone line. So they decided to change their approach because that resident didn't let them in the home, turned them away. 
So when the pair knocked on the door of Half Zantop, he answered the door. And now the pair's story was that they were students conducting an environmental study for a class project. And would he be willing to answer some question? Now, Half being an educator and, of course, environmental science, he readily agreed. And he invited the two into his study to begin the survey. And it was pretty clear right away to Half that these two young men were not well prepared with their survey questions. And he told them so. It was when Half turned his back to them that Tullock took out his knife and started to attack him, stabbing him in the back, head, neck, and chest. Suzanne, hearing the attack, ran from the kitchen only to be attacked initially by Tullock, and then Tullock then ordered Parker to stab Suzanne and slit her throat. So upon leaving the residence, they did take Half's wallet that only contained about $340. The pair left Etna, New Hampshire, but on their ride home, they realized that they had left the knife sheaths and decided to go back and get them. Now, when they arrived back at the Zantop residence, police were already there, so they decided to just let it go. In April 2019, James Parker, after serving 18 years of his 25-year sentence, asked for early release. Now, during his time in prison, James has been described as a model prisoner. He obtained a master's degree and used his time behind bars in a productive manner. He even received a 21-month reduction to his sentence because of earning time off credits. Parker, in addition to his higher education degree, also completed a number of vocational training programs. He was an active member in the prison theater and art programs and has several, actually, of his artworks hanging in the men's prison. Forensic psychologist Robert Kenscherf evaluated Parker for what criminal risk he would pose to the community if released. Parker's scores showed at the, quote, very low end for violent behavior and reoffending, unquote. So if released, he does plan on living with his parents who still reside in Chelsea, Vermont, and already has a construction job lined up. So in June 2021, news broke that Parker decided to withdraw his petition for early release. 35 at the time, Parker decided to wait for his earliest release date of May 2024. Meanwhile, Robert Tullock was serving life without the possibility of parole sentence when the United States Supreme Court ruled in 2012 that it was unconstitutional to sentence juveniles to sentences of death or life without the possibility of parole. So when Robert Tullock committed this crime, he was 17, and he was sentenced to, again, life without the possibility of parole. But as of April 2021, Tullock's resentencing hearing was on hold. So he is up to be resentenced. What that resentencing will look like, I don't know, but I don't know how many years specifically he'll get, but he will be given life with the possibility of parole. So that is the Ivy League murder case of the murders of Half and Suzanne Zantop. So if, if you've enjoyed this episode, we would only ask that you leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to us on. And if you give us a five star, we'd appreciate it even more. So as always, guys, if you see something, say something, you might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. So as always, we want you to stay safe. Hopefully next time Maddie will be back with us and she'll be all better. But always remember, we need to be looking out for each other out there. So until next time, guys, bye. Bye.